politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, scorned and forgotten taxpayers and cheated American citizens to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, in the house for Blaze TV today, Monday, the second week of the revolution. Yes, there has been a revolution. Will will there be a counter-revolution? And that is our job. Our job is to counter the revolutionaries with our own revolution. It's time for those of us, the silent majority, and no, I don't mean the silent majority of the majority of votes that have been erroneously tabulated that are silent because they're in the grave. Not that silent majority, not the graveyard. But I mean those who are living, who constituted the majority of the living votes. It's time for us to stand up. The question will be, in the coming days and weeks, are we finally backed up against the wall enough where we can retreat no longer? Where there's no nowhere to go? That's the big question. Now, as I'm going to be talking about today with our special guest coming up later, constitutional law professor, constitutional law scholar, historian, is how we could pressure the state legislatures to make self-governance and Republican values, I don't mean Republican Party, but lowercase Republican values, great again. How the state legislatures could step in and rectify the situation as needed to investigate this, to publicize what's been going on. This is more of a battle in the court of public opinion than it is in a conventional court, as much as there are going to be lawsuits ongoing. As you know, I've always believed that the way to address this is in the legislature. I wrote an article late last week informing people that at the end of the day, the state legislatures are the ones who pick the electors. Now, obviously, we're not saying to just do anything rash, but what we are saying is to say, slow it down and let's have a debate. Let's have a discovery process. And then we could see what's going on. You see, the other side, there's one point I want you guys to understand before we delve into some specifics. A general point. The other side is trying to make it like, look, this is six days past the thing. He's winning all those states. He's ahead in all of them. Come on, he's the president-elect. Like, as if we're doing something unusual. But what they are forgetting is that this was baked into the cake months ago. They are the ones who did something unusual, regardless of what did and didn't occur election night. They are the ones that shifted the entire electorate onto mail-in ballots. So it was known ahead of time that this would be an election like none other before, that this would be an election likely not decided. Remember at the debates and the forums, the moderators would ask Trump, like, look, you know, it might be days, if not weeks before we know a winner. And they would talk about election fraud. They talked about this. This was known up front. So Democrats are the ones that wanted to create this situation. And now they're like, hey, taking the ball and going home. Oh, no, it's over. We could have said it was over at three in the morning and declared Trump the the victor. But no, there's more to go, right? And now they want to declare him the victor 
when we have so many mail-in ballots with no verification that it makes no sense to do this. You know, Biden in 2000, in defending Gore for fighting on for five weeks, he said, at the end of the day, they want to know if this election passes the smell test. I'll tell you something. We already see a lot of foul-smelling things. Nevada, former Nevada Attorney General Adam Laxalt alleges that there are some 200,000 ballots in Clark County, Nevada that have not been verified by a human. In a new, in a new sworn affidavit, a whistleblower within the Clark County Elections Department claims that Nevada poll workers fabricated proof of residence data for illegal voters. And of course, the Democrat administration there doesn't want to take any action. Okay, These are election workers, now a sworn affidavit. In an election fraud lawsuit filed in Detroit, we have affidavits now alleging backdating ballots and no matching signatures. City employee claiming she was asked to backdate ballots. Again, remember... This stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum, one or two people alleging it here and there. This is the ultimate instance for which when you have smoke, you have fire. Because that is, this is not a bug of mail-ins. It's the feature. It's why they wanted it. They didn't want it because they gave a damn about COVID. The same way you have all these celebrations in the streets with thousands of people smoking marijuana together. They're not worried about spreading COVID. They're worried when they're suddenly worried about it because they're worried about losing an election. We have this video posted. A vivid example of what many of us saw throughout the night in Pennsylvania, a screenshot of CNN's live election feed. As it changed from 10.22 p.m. to 10.23 p.m., where they literally show the totals in that one minute of Trump dropping by 19,958 and Biden's going up by 19,958. So that's not just a a batch of votes that are 100 to 0 Biden, but somehow you could have negative voting that could deplete someone's existing tally. Fulton County... Clerks are now saying there's up to 132,000 ballots that have been identified as likely ineligible. Now, it's garbage in, garbage out. If you want to tell me that Biden is running 90-10 in these ballots in Fulton, well, then the invalidation of 132,000 should run roughly 90-10 against Biden. And that's well over the margin of his lead. Where are we here? Where are the Republicans? So thankfully, some state legislators have reached out to me and Mark Levin and are starting to talk about this. And we're not asking tomorrow for them to just appoint electors who will be loyal to Trump and win the Electoral College. We're not trying to take the ball and run home. 
even though we are certain that Trump won this election. We are certain that he won Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. But the idea is to at least investigate it. It's not just about courts. Do it in the public through a hearing. People testify. Then they have a floor debate. There's a process. See, this is why we like legislatures deciding political issues more than courts. Because there's no like, oh, here's the opinion. No, you see how the sausage is made. So the Speaker of the Wisconsin House, the Michigan House, they've already announced investigations, a special session. Pennsylvania looks like they're reluctantly, the Republicans are reluctantly coming around. And... The one thing is Georgia. I mean, those Republicans are in the witness protection program. Can you believe this? After seeing that at Fulton County, the Georgia Republican Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, he told CNN, there's no credible evidence of voter fraud or disenfranchisement in the state. You know, Rand Paul pointed out an amazing thing. Our government sent 1.1 million dead people stimulus checks. As we well know, our government sent people... We, we, we talked about this person in Norway, people overseas who aren't U.S. citizens, you know, and they were here temporarily on visas for whatever reason. They got stimulus checks in their home countries. So you have a mail-in election. It mails everyone ballots. You dump them in. We know it's going to take ages to verify them. Remember, everyone's like, well, Daniel, well, you know, what is this? We should know who won already. I agree with you. We should know who won already. But we are not the ones who created this illegal process. That's when you just have a normal election and you have some absentee ballots. But if you have the majority of your electorate in some areas on mail-ins, well, you need to verify that. And that's going to take a longer period of time. Even without prima facie fraud, as we see now. So that's what we have going on here. Then we have Wisconsin. This is from WISN 1130. County and municipal clerks and poll workers across Wisconsin may have unlawfully altered witness statements on thousands of mail-in pallets across the state, the Dan O'Donnell Show has learned. Wisconsin Statute 6.86 provides that an absentee ballot must be signed by a witness who is also required to list his or her address. If a witness address is not listed, then the ballot is considered invalid and must be returned to the voter to have the witness correct the witness corrected. Instead, multiple sources tell the Dan O'Donnell Show municipal clerks and vote counters across the state simply filed, simply filled out witness signatures themselves. The clerks filled it out. And again, this jives with what we have sworn testimony now in Nevada, um, Michigan, and then the, this wasn't a poll worker, but this was a postal worker in Erie County, Pennsylvania. So you can no longer say there's nothing to see here. And again, these things are not coming in a vacuum. It's not like this is a normal election and suddenly we have these accusations. It's not a normal election. You have all this mail-in. 
And then finally, there's the way they were counted and the timing of when they came in, where they came in, only coming in in the certain places the Democrats needed, but also controlled the process in those areas. Because if they didn't, then they weren't able to do it like in Iowa and Florida and and Michigan. And the stopping of the counting in all the areas where he wound up getting these insane things. These insane dumps that made no sense. Yes, there's what to see here. And this is going to be very telling as to which Republicans are on board. Because let me tell you something. These Republicans, the homosexual Republicans that are promoting this nonsense, let me tell you something. They will not have a a snowball's chance in hell of getting past Steve Dace in Iowa if they want to be a serious contender in Iowa caucuses for 2024. This is a major problem here. Common sense dictates. We know why Democrats were doing this. And again, it wasn't COVID. They started this as the pilot two years ago with the mail-ins. And it worked so well, which is why Republicans are so stupid because they think they could throw Trump overboard, but they'll somehow win in the coming years and and in Georgia in the runoff. No, you won't. You can't win. You know, it's funny watching the Democrat like analysts like, you know, it's interesting. We see that conservatives were right about the shy Trump voter and Trump overperformed. But why not in these places? (laughs) Gee, I'll tell you why, because those are the places you cheated. Trump did better in Florida by three and a half points, four points than in Georgia. Come on. The Georgia needle, when the when the ballots were well after 50 percent reporting, the New York Times needle algorithm predicted, projected Trump to win by four points at that point, which is exactly what the WSB final poll was. And we saw it. We went through the night like that. And it all jived. And then he was crushing in Iowa and Ohio. And then the numbers that came in from Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, I don't mean the first 10%. I mean the overwhelming majority in Wisconsin, over 90% in. It jived with that. It jived with a bigger victory than he won last time. Jived with the fact that according to the exit polls, non-college educated whites composed nine or eight percentage points greater of the pie of the electorate in Wisconsin than they did in 2016 and nine points greater in Michigan. Plus, Trump did better with black voters, a little bit. So even if he lost a little bit more ground than last time in some some of the suburban counties, it doesn't account for that. There's a broader point of uniformity. See, the other says, well, look, what do you want? The mail-in ballots, the Democrats were very good and they got their stuff together and uh, they overwhelmingly skewed Biden. Okay, we get that. We all get that. We get that they skewed Biden. I understand that. But they're going to skew Biden in a uniform way. Not suddenly from just one county where they need it in the state that they need it at 3 a.m. in the morning or 5 a.m. in the morning after stopping the count in each one for a couple hours, but not anywhere else. No, that is not going to happen. There's a very important thread that someone had on Twitter. Normally, I don't like quoting anonymous things or people we never heard of or whatever, 
But this is so, it, it's, it's amazing, the math. And there's a lot of good math points that people are making. And maybe we'll have some guests on to go in this a little bit more in depth. But this guy has a, this, again, this anonymous guy has this um, screen name, Cultural Husbandry on Twitter. He said, the following information is provided via an anonymous data scientist and another anonymous individual who wrote a script to scrape the national ballot counting time series data off the New York Times website. So they took the New York Times website, and here's what they found. And he, and he showed where the database is. I suggest that everyone back up both these files because this is an extremely important data source, and we can't risk anyone taking it down. What we are looking at will be a time series analysis and I'm sorry, guys, this is only audio, so it's hard to really visualize the scattered diagrams, but just bear with me. What we're looking at will be a time series analysis, and you'll see that it is extremely difficult to create convincing synthetic time series data. By looking at the time series logs of the ballot counting process for the entire country, we can very easily spot fraud. One of the first things noticed while exploring the data set is that there seems to be an obvious pattern in the ratio of new Biden ballots to new Trump ballots, meaning as they're being counted. As we can see on this log log plot, for many of the counting progress updates, we see an almost constant ratio of Biden to Trump. It's such a regular pattern that we can actually fit a linear regression model to it with near perfect accuracy, barring some outliers. How could this be possible? Is this a telltale sign of fraud? Surprisingly, as will be shown, the answer is no. This is actually expected behavior. Also, we can use this weird pattern in the ballot counting to spot the fraud. And he shows a pattern in Florida, a linear pattern. Again and again and again throughout the night, the updates are very consistent. And it's true most places in the country. What appears to be happening is that points on the straight line are actually mail-in votes. The reason they're so homogenous across with respect to the ratio of Biden versus Trump votes, is that they get randomly shuffled in the mail, like a deck of cards. Since the ballots are randomly mixed together during transport, spanning areas occupied by multiple voting demographics, we can expect the ratio of mail-in Biden ballots to mail-in Trump ballots will remain relatively constant over time and across different reporting updates. So let me just, this is end quote from this guy. Let me just say, what he means is that, obviously you could have throughout the night, okay, you know, typically these ballots uh, in person come in from a very red rural area. This comes in from a deep blue city. So it could, you know, it could vary a lot. But his point is the mail-ins actually vary less because it's like a deck of cards. It's it's constant. It's not happening in real time. They're, they're from before the mail-in ballots, right? So, yeah, you know, Biden might have a 65, 35, 60, 40 edge on those ballots. But that is going to be constant throughout the night because the geography is mixed in. It's, it's homogenous, not heterogeneous. But let me continue. Let's dig a little deeper into this. Here is a plot of the same Florida voting data, but this time it's the ratio Biden to Trump ballots versus time. So he, he, he plotted it versus time. And what we see is this initial ballot reportings are very noisy and random. So it's like scattered, right? The first 5% because you haven't created your pattern yet. The initial reporting represents in-person voting. The right in-person voting have has a large variation because in-person voting happens across different geographic areas that have different political alignments. So you could have, you know, Palm Beach coming in one area and the Panhandle coming in another minute. So those updates will vary. One will be pro-Trump, one will be pro-Biden, and so on. 
We can see the same pattern of noisy in-person voting, followed by homogenous mail-in reporting in almost all cases. What we see in almost all examples across the country is that the ratio of mail-in dem to rep ballots is very consistent across time. But actually with the notable drift from dem to slightly more rep. So he's saying it actually got a little bit more Republican over time. Generally constant, a little bit more. Why? The slight drift from D to R mail-ins occurs again and again and is likely due to the outlying rural areas having more R voters. These outlying areas take longer to ship their ballots to the polling centers. So, you know, this whole notion that the urban areas come in last is nonsense, especially with mail-in ballots. Now we're getting into the really good stuff. When we see mail-in ballot counting, where there isn't relatively stable ratios of DNR ballots that slightly drift R, we have an anomaly. Anomalies themselves are not necessarily fraud, but they can help us spot fraud more easily. He takes a look at Wisconsin, the voting log. On the y-axis, we have the ratio of D to R ballots in a reporting batch, and x-axis is we have the reporting time. Again, you really have to see this. Around 4 a.m., there is a marked a market shift in the ratio of D to R mail-in ballots. Based on the other posts in this thread, this should not happen. This is an anomaly. And while anomalies are not always fraud, often they may point to fraud. And then there was a report late at night. Local news reported this, that Milwaukee's 169,000 abstain ballots en route to county election officials. That was reported at 4.06 a.m. by local media. Okay? Now, they were supposed to stop accepting new ballots, by the way, at that point, because it was after midnight. So let's just put that aside. It could be those things are against law, but whatever. By 4 a.m., the D to R ratio in Wisconsin was thrown out of whack. That's because these ballots were not sampled from the real Wisconsin voter population. They were not randomized in the mail sorting system. With other ballots, they inherently have a different D to R signature than the rest of the ballots, quite possibly because additional ballots were added to the batch either through backdating or ballot manufacturing or software tampering. This being the kind of analogous to carbon-14 dating, but for ballot batch authenticity. Then he took a look at Pennsylvania. For the first part of the vote counting process, earlier part of the night, we see the same pattern for mail-in ballots that we've seen in every other state, which is relatively stable DDR ratio that gradually shifts R as more ballots come in from rural outlying areas. But then as counting continues, the DDR ratio in mail-in ballots inexplicably begin increasing. Again, this should not happen. And it is observed nowhere else in the country because all the ballots are randomly shuffled in the mail system and should be homogenous during counting. The only exceptions to this are other suspect states that also have anomalies. And he points that in Georgia, same story as Pennsylvania, increasing fractions of mail-in D ballots over time, even though it defies logic, and we should see this pattern other places in the country. So, meaning, if you want to tell me there's this, the, 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 it's different the way they did it, you would see it in the other states then. In Michigan, we see a combination of Wisconsin strangeness together with the GAPA weirdness. We see both signs of contaminated ballot dumping and ballot ratios drifting towards Dems. In other words, 
Wisconsin is just like there was like one dump. It was almost like one dump did it. Georgia and Pennsylvania were more homogeneously weird throughout the like throughout the later hours of the night. The drift and Michigan seemed to have both. So there you have it. This is a big problem. This is a very big problem. And we need to get to the bottom of it. So folks, what do we do about it? Do we come crying to the courts as the final arbiter of everything? Like the courts seem to be the final arbiter of life, marriage, immigration law. Who's a citizen? Who's not? Even foreign policy now, courts seem to be venturing into. Now look, I don't think there's no role for a court to play with certain specific mechanical matters of election fraud. But ultimately, we have to prosecute this case in the public eye. And the way to do that is for the legislatures to meet in those respective states that have these voting anomalies and to hold the hearings, to have public input, to bring down experts, experts on election law, experts on you know, the software, the glitches, people behind that software, to get to the bottom of this. But I wanted people to know that ultimately, the reason why that's so important is because if they do find material fraud that is sufficient enough to have made the election returns completely irrelevant, because if the margins are too slim to say with confidence that the guy who's officially on top or unofficially on top is the victor, then they actually do have the power to choose electors. Now, who am I? Who am I to say this? Well, let me give you someone who has spent his entire life teaching, studying constitutional law. Our next guest, Robert Nadelson, he's a constitutional scholar and historian. He's a professor at University of Montana Law School for many, many years. He's an advisor to the Convention of the States Project. My dear friend Mark Meckler uh, co-founded that. He serves on the Board of Scholars of the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC. So he very much understands the power of state legislators. He worked on the Goldwater campaign. So this, this he, he is uh, the real deal, has been doing this for quite a while, and has a ton of books on the Constitution and law and history as well. Um, the one I really want you guys to take a look at on Amazon is the original Constitution, what it actually said and meant, again, by Robert Nadelson. And as always, you could catch his columns at the Epoch Times. Make sure you see his column on the remedy for electoral fraud. Professor Nadelson, thanks so much for joining us today. It's good to be with you. And let me just say that for listeners who don't want to support Amazon, you can also pick up a copy of my book, The Original Constitution, what it actually said and meant at Barnes & Noble. See, there you go. You're already ahead of me there. I didn't even think about that, but um, I'm too I'm too newfangled with this, thinking you buy everything online. But you're right. I mean, this is how we have to circumvent these folks. We can't go and reward their uh, their censorship. Well, this, it would still be it's still online. Okay, it's just at BarnesandNoble.com. But uh, you take your pick, either BarnesandNoble.com or Amazon.com. There you go. So perfect. Again, the original Constitution, what it actually said and meant. All right. Well, with that, Professor, the original Constitution, what does it have to say 
about what is going on in the country right now with this contested or questionable election. Okay. Well, the Constitution, not just the original one, but the one today, says that the primary responsibility for determining the rules regarding uh, presidential electors um, is the the state legislatures. The state legislatures determine how presidential elections electors are chosen. They, in fact, chose them in the early days of our republic. And then in every state, they handed over the job uh, to the people in public vote. Um, The um, Constitution also has a provision called the same-day clause, and it provides two things. First, it provides that Congress may, if it wish, pass a law specifying a single uniform day throughout the country whereby the electors all vote for the president. The Electoral College votes for the president. And Congress has accepted that invitation. This year, the official date is December 14th. It also says that Congress may establish a time, doesn't use the word day, a time for uh, the choice of presidential electors. And of course, that's what we, we do when we go to the polls. And Congress has accepted that invitation and established the time for choosing presidential electors this year as November 3rd. Now, part of the uh, article that I that was just published in the Epic Times discusses the problem with mail-in ballots uh, in presidential elections and says that they, they do violate the same-day clause. But then the question becomes, if you've got states where it's uncertain who won because of fraud or other reasons, uh, what then is the remedy? And I list sure. several different remedies. So before before you get onto that, Professor, I just want to jump back because I wasn't planning on getting into this, but now I see it's too important to overlook the first part of what you talked about. And again, you guys could catch this column. It's his latest one at the Epic Times. Just um, the easiest way is just like you Google my name and Blaze, Google Robert, Robert Nadelson, the Epic Times, you'll see his top column. But Professor, what I can't figure out here is, so a lot of people tell me, well, Daniel, you know, we've always had absentee ballot, and you never had a constitutional problem with that. Why is there a, a why why does this run amok the same day clause of the constitutional constitution, and that same day obviously has been set by Congress um, this year for November third? Why would mail-ins be different this year? Okay, well, one thing to remember is that. Uh, any problem with absentee ballots is limited to the president, right? The presidential race. The same day clause doesn't apply to Congress, doesn't apply to state officials. It only applies to the president. Yeah. And so if a state wants to or the Congress wants to authorize voting early, that's fine. Um, but with respect to the president, I think there is a constitutional problem with the way we've handled uh, absentee ballots, that is to say voting in advance. Now, Mm. there are other ways of doing absentee ballots and not violating the same-day clause. For example, uh, one thing that was occasionally done in the early republic is to have proxy voting. Uh, Let's say you're an overseas service member. Mm. uh, You simply designate a family member in a formal document to cast your vote on November 3rd. Uh, Another way, which is a use of modern technology, is to allow, let's say, service members serving overseas or others that can't get home to vote allowing them to vote electronically. That's a little dicier, obviously, because you want to make sure that there isn't fraud. But my point is, 
that we don't have to scuttle the whole idea of absentee ballots. There are ways to do it in presidential elections. Just that the idea of voting um, well in advance of the election is something that the founders recognized, rendered the election subject to corruption in many, many ways, mm. and resulted in voters being treated unfairly. Um, to give one example of corruption, if, it, if uh, most people have voted, you've only got a few pe people who have voted. Sometimes campaigns can exercise undue pressure on, on those few or tell those few things that are different from what they told everything else. Yes. Told everyone else. In addition, when you vote over an extended period of time, you can get a lot of political maneuvering of various kinds and certain very innocent things can happen that render the election unfair. So uh, one, ex one came up in the 2020 election while people were voting. And after some had already voted, evidence came out that uh, it wasn't just Joe Biden's family that was involved in influence peddling, that there was very good reason to, to, to believe that Joe Biden himself was involved in this scheme. Well, that's information, whether you think it's true or not, uh, is not relevant. That's information that later voters got a chance to weigh and earlier voters didn't have a chance to weigh. This is the reason why the, why we have a same-day clause. Now, in, as for the choice of presidential electors, it doesn't actually have to be a day, but it does have to be a single time, okay? So, so Congress could say, uh, you know, the voting can occur over a two- or three-day period. That would be okay. In fact, there were sometimes two-day elections in the, during the founding era as well. Mm. But the notion of it going on for weeks and weeks defeats the whole purpose of the clause. And it was an amazing uh, display of arrogance or disregard uh, when they decided to run this election over weeks. So, th so that's the th that's why I wanted to touch on that, because you're talking about the foundation for why we're even in this position right now. And it, it's like this with many policy issues where we have one breach in the Constitution that begets another and we have a bunch of chaos and it results from an original deviation. So this entire business of putting the the much of the electorate on mail-in ballots was really a breach in the Constitution, at least for the presidential component of the ballot. So now we're up to the second half, which is all right. So there's a lot of questions of fraud and some state legislators, as I pointed out earlier in the show, Thankfully, they are starting to get involved and conduct investigations. So when I put out my article last week, um, Mark Levin read it on his show that state legislators ultimately do have the final say in selecting the electors. I got some feedback from some legislators in some of those states, and they were peppering me with some questions. Well, Daniel, you're right. They originally did have the power, and they still constitutionally have the power, but they passed a statute giving over the power to the people through popular elections. So, Daniel, wouldn't you need a statute to reverse that? And a statute would require the signature of the governor, which in the states where we happen to be talking about, you don't you have Democrat governors. What would you tell those legislators? All right. Well, the problem isn't free of doubt. And before I get into it, let me just mention one other thing about the first point about our disregard sure. of the same day clause. I think part of it comes from this cu current conceit that we have that we're smarter than the founders. <laughs> but the founders weren't gods, okay? But they had enormous experience in uh, elections, they had enormous experience in politics. 
in war, in, um, in business, in agriculture, in diplomacy, uh, that your run-of-the-mill politician today just doesn't have. And they, <laughs> Clearly they, not. Uh, right. And they also, uh, had, they also did an enormous amount of research and had an enormous amount of material uh, with which to make their choices. So while I wouldn't say the founders were always correct as to everything, this blight, the dismissal of the founders as, oh, you know, just a bunch of dead white European males is, is, is arrogant and really uninformed, really ignorant. Okay, let's, let's, let's come back to the point now. Um, I mentioned that Congress had exercised its authority under the same day clause to establish one day whereby electors choose the president that Congress had exercised its authority to establish a time by which the people go to the polls to choose electors. But Congress has another statute which says that in the event that the choice is not made on election day, for whatever reason, mm. natural disaster or corruption or whatever, then the, then the state legislature determines how to choose the electors. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So, so, so I, I just take it slow. You're you're ahead of all of us. So that, that that in itself, it might be obvious to you, but clearly these legislators emailing me don't know that um, because because I don't think I did a good enough job e- making the case you just did. It's not just the fact that, oh, you know, they have plenary power and they could even hold elections and just abolish popular elections themselves, as you noted. And that was the case in many states at the founding of the country. But what you're saying is what we're talking about here is not the legislators saying, screw you, we're not holding a popular election. We did. But if you know we see evidence that there's problems and we can't determine a winner, you're saying federal statute empowered by the Constitution already prescribes a process for this. That's correct. In fact, it might be a good idea to read that statute. It's very short. Whenever any state has held an election for the purpose of choosing electors and has failed to make a choice on the day prescribed by law, that is November 3rd, that's failed to make a choice on the day prescribed by law, the electors may be appointed on a subsequent day in such manner as the legislature of such state may direct. Now, let me just supplement that with one other thing. It is true that, generally speaking, when the legislature acts under the Constitution in establishing election law, for example, the state legislature has a law governing congressional elections. They're empowered by the Constitution to do that. It's true that the governor is involved. But as to the, but if the decision to actually appoint electors is one done by the by the uh, state legislature alone. Yep. Just what just like how the state legislature used to choose U.S. senators, the, the governor wasn't involved in that. That was purely a matter for the state legislature. Yes, and, and, and I noted, I noted by the way in that McPherson case in the 1892 Supreme Court case which I believe was over the states that wanted to start allocating the electors, not based on winner-take-all within the state, but based on right. um, districts. It, it, the case was Michigan, but nowadays we have that in Maine and Nebraska. But the point is, it, it, the, the court made that juxtaposition, you just said, very closely, because that was before the 17th Amendment. The state legislators were picking the senators, um, not through popular votes. They themselves were picking them, and they, they, they held that parallel. It was that same degree of power the governor wasn't involved it had nothing to do with that the yeah. it was a bicameral choice so so the analogy you're using was actually made in that you know landmark 1892 case yes 
uh, the Constitution is a little confusing on this point, because when the Constitution refers to the state legislature, sometimes it means the whole legislative power, including the governor and the uh, initiative and referendum. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it only means the state legislature as as a freestanding assembly. And that is the case with with electors. There is another there is another option. I don't want to lose it here. The state legislature, this probably would require legislation and approval by the governor. Sure. The, the state legislature, if it decides that the choice is not made on the day prescribed by law, this, presumably the state legislature can call a new election. The state legislature could say, look, we got a real mess here. We don't want to make the choice ourselves. Let's let the people of our state make the choice. And let's say that it's Pennsylvania, they can say all the electors, all the, the, the people can come back to the polls on the first um, on the first Tuesday in December, which works out to December 1st this year, and, and we'll have an election there. And we'll do it by the old fashioned way of paper ballots. You show up at the polls, if you can't get to the polls, you, you're driven to the polls by, by volunteers and so forth, just the way we ran elections for 230 years. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, they have that option too. If they if they don't feel that they can make the choice themselves, they can call a quickie special election. Uh, and some people might grumble about that, but you know, in other countries, you often have quick elections, uh, one one right after another, in order to, to to decide who gets a parliamentary majority. So it would not be that unusual to have a quickie election uh, uh, to uh, to resolve an issue that wasn't resolved on November third. And you're giving a legal opinion, but I think there's the political aspect of what you're saying, which is true. Yes, the second option of just downright calling a new election, those states would probably require the governor's input. But on the other hand, politically speaking, the constitutionality of your first option could leverage the second one. They could say, look, you know, we we could cut you out. I mean, we could appoint uh, right. the, the the electors. Now, you, we, we'd rather not do that. If you don't want that Democrat governor, you know, Tom Wolf in, in Pennsylvania, for example, or Whitmer in Michigan, well, then let, let, let's call another election. And and this time we'll, we, we could, you know, while we're passing that statute, maybe we could lay out some of the parameters of the voting to ensure we don't have the same problems we had last time. But but the important thing is for people to forget to, to not forget that we don't have that that we have this remedy. And I just want to ask you one other thing, and I think I know the answer already. So the other question they're asking is, well, Daniel, you know, we have this is the off season. You know, it's not the the football season for state legislature, which is usually in January. This is off season. And a lot of states I know in North Carolina, they told me this, that you need the government's consent, the governor's consent to convene the legislature, not in session. Um, But so you're saying this federal law would override that? Well, I don't think it would override the requirement for the governor to call the legislature in session. But there are many states where the legislature can come in session by simply a petition signed by the, by a certain number of state legislatures. Mm. Uh, the other point that you made is really important, and I think it needs to be underscored and explained a little bit more. Let's say you're dealing, let's use Pennsylvania as an example. Um, the Republican legislature can say to the governor, the Democratic governor, we don't want to appoint these electors ourselves, but we will do it if you don't agree to a new election. And so, governor, if the people don't, or the people of Pennsylvania don't get a choice, that's because of your decision, and you're going to take the heat for that. I think in those circumstances, 
depending on the circumstances, some Democratic governors are going to say, okay, uh, I don't want the legislature choosing the elector, so I'm going to go along with a with a uh, with a new election. Remember also that there, I think, are ten states where you've got massive allegations of, or allegations of massive fraud, and to change the result on the federal level, you're only going to need a flip of about two two big states. Uh, uh, Pennsylvania, for example, has has uh, 20 electoral votes. Pennsylvania and one other large state that would would probably be enough to flip the electoral college at this point. So, uh, especially if North Carolina remains in the Trump column. So um, it's not like this procedure has to go on in all 10 states. Although, if several states decide to do it, it makes it politically easier for state legislators to explain their cons- to their constituents why they, why they went along with it. For, for sure. And again, all of this has to do with the preponderance of evidence. And obviously, you have to make the case. And that's what they really need to be doing in the next week or two and and building that narrative. And I think if the narrative is that strong, it will become clear to the public that you cannot really trust the results. So if you can't trust the results, you have to have new results or um, you, you follow the original option, which is certainly not ideal to begin with, but it is legal and it it, it is a remedy. Um, do you have that federal statute governing uh, contested elections or questionable elections? Uh, yes. Um, it's Title Three of the United States Code, Section 2. Okay, very simple. That's so, the folks, one I read. So, folks, uh, you could uh, look it up yourself. Yep. All you have to do is enter uh, 3 U.S. Code 2 in, in your browser, and it'll pop up. Because that, that's what bothers me. If you have a statute saying that states, this is your power. You know, the Constitution gives Congress the power. Congress says... The state legislators have it, and anyway, the Constitution, even without the federal uh, statute, says state legislators pick the electors. So to me, if a governor is going to say, I'm not going to convene you, well, that might run into headwinds with that law. I mean, that, that's just what I'm confused about. Um, yeah, uh, right. That is going to raise interesting political issues, and it would be difficult because – as you pointed out at the at the beginning of our discussion, the courts don't move fast. Uh, that's going to have to be a state by state analysis. Uh, yes. Maybe legislators can go to the attorney general and say, "Hey, look, we got a federal obligation to uh, to discharge here," and the governor standing in the way. Is there any way we can get around? Uh, we can get around that. Exactly. I mean, no- normally none of us like meddling in with the states at a federal level, but I mean, this is a federal election and it, it, and it poses unique constitutional duties and, and questions. And certainly Congress is involved in controlling that uniform process to some degree. So this this is a little bit of a unique circumstance, even for those of us that that typically want to keep that power in the states. So I think this is a very clear remedy. Now the question is just you know, building the case, um, which is what we need to do. In the remaining just two minutes here, I want to just get your general sense of where we are with state legislatures. So I I wrote a column today basically lamenting the fact that Republicans have more states where they control or they command greater majorities than Democrats do in a state like California, and yet they don't do anything with it. And like the, the coronavirus uh, fascism, violating civil rights. I mean, you have this in solid red states where Republicans have five to one majorities in the state legislatures. 
to me, everything started with the state legislatures. I mean, the rebellion really took off because the other states realized that if they can abolish, if the British could abolish the Massachusetts legislature, they could do it to the other states as well. Um, Certainly, it was the state legislatures that chose a lot of the committees of correspondence that wound up forming the Continental Congress and eventually the Constitution. Uh, that's really the bedrock of our democracy since the just the early settlements. And I just feel like a lot of people have ignored legislatures. What do you think, what sort of opportunities do you think constitu- constitutionalists have given that Republicans have won pretty substantial majorities in a lot of states? All right, I'm going to give you what might be construed as a dodge, but I want to explain <laughs> why. Uh, I'm not just a professor. I was very active in state politics in Montana. I personally mm. led and managed three successful um, ballot initiatives and the largest uh, referendum petition drive in the history of the state. I ran for governor myself, came in second in a field of five in 2000. So I've got good experience with state level, um, with state level politics. And the reason I'm giving you a dodge is based on that information or that background, I will tell you the reasons are extremely complicated. There are a whole number. This is something maybe we could do in another podcast. Yes, yes, absolutely. But the the dynamics are different. Let me just give you one and one only. In many of those, in some of those states where you've got overwhelming Republican majorities, Idaho, for example, Anyone who wants to run for state legislature knows he has to file as a Republican. And as a result of that, you get some people Uh. who in other states would file as Democrats. (laughs) So they've got an R after their name, but they're at least sympathetic to the Democratic agenda. So if if the majority looks like a 75 percent Republican, uh, the actual Republican majority may be only 55 percent or actually the majority uh, might be (laughs) held by Democrats and would be Democrats. I mean, that's simply one of many, many factors. We wow. Could, we could at a future time discuss others if you wish. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we just saw the the South Dakota House is what, it's it's 30 to 2 Republican. And and somehow the Democrats never have this problem in their states. You know, I, I don't see uh, Republicans in the woodpile hiding out in their woodpile. But yeah, this asymmetry is certainly very evident. Um, again, you have tons of experience, state-level politics, state legislatures, um, and also, I just love the fact that you have such a command of history because so much of law is is not understood properly if you don't understand American history properly. And I'm I'm going to need your broad shoulders on this going forward because I often am forced to give legal opinions alone, um, at least in a political sense. And and there's I, I don't think you want to do I don't think you want to do that, Daniel. And, and there's, and there's very few people, and there's very few people doing this and giving any guidance. And there's just so much confusion. People don't understand basic constitutional provisions these days and how it applies to what's going on. So certainly we are going to be calling upon you. Um, you know, because there's a lot of questions with with and again, I'm not I don't mean to get too far off the path here, but with coronavirus and all these emergency powers and suddenly the First Amendment doesn't apply and the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply. And everyone's just taking this sitting down as if this is a given. And, you know, a lot of questions aren't being asked on a bunch of issues. So it's important to get back to the bedrock values. Um, Again, folks, the original Constitution, what it actually said and meant by Robert Nadelson. Um, Rob, any closing thoughts before we uh, sew it up here? 
No, I think we pretty well covered it. Thank you very much for allowing me to be on your show. Awesome. Looking forward to having you back. Take care. And there you have it, folks. I mean, these are the type of guests that we are always going to have on when other people aren't. Um, you know, he's he's obviously a strong conservative. He uh, ran for office himself before he worked on Barry Goldwater's campaign. But first and foremost, he's a straight arrow when it comes to legal matters, and he's not never going to overstep beyond what he believes is truly the meaning of the Constitution, irrespective of what the political outcome is. So, I mean, this is the type of guy I think we all want to draw on more often. I, myself, certainly um, will be going to him for many other questions. I, I met him through Mark Meckler, the Convention of the States. And uh, this, this is obviously someone who really is clued into the mechanics of, of state power and the Constitution, the intersection of the two. So that's the thing. I mean, it's federal law that governs this. Federal law, USC 3, Statute 2, that gives the authority straight up to the state legislators to choose. So it's not just that they could always choose you know, but have chosen to delegate it through elections. It's we have elections, popular elections, but if they are contested and it's unclear, they are the ones who resolve it. So I think that's an important point. I don't think I made powerfully enough in my original article. Maybe I'll do an update based on this. We will be watching all the fraud. Send me your theories, your questions, if you have good ideas. And I, I do want to apologize I have been lax in answering emails. It's just been very tough the last week, and I hope you guys understand. I'm going to try to get better um, about getting back to some of you guys who do email me, but I really do appreciate it as always. Um, look, we're getting censored everywhere. We're going to have to find new platforms. Um, you know, it's funny. I'm just looking now, seeing Christy Nome, governor of South Dakota, talking. Imagine where Trump would have been had she been on the bottom of the ticket. Where's Mike Pence? Haven't heard from him much. Interesting. Um, but that that that's who most of these Republicans are. You have the Utah governor out there uh, just promoting COVID fascism now, mask mandates. He literally sounds like Gavin Newsom of California. Republicans have four to one, five to one majorities in the state legislators there. And what do we have to show for it? So this is all part of making state legislatures great again, no matter what happens with this election. We need that on every issue. We need a declaration of rights and grievances passed by every Republican legislature. We'll talk about that in the coming days. But until now, they got to get on this fraud. We are starting to see some movement, but the administration really does need to provide the public with at least the broad counter narrative that that we're trying to build here. It's going to be a very busy week. But we are here, we are on it, we are covering it. Stay with Blaze Media, not with Fox News. Follow me on Twitter, so long as I'm still there, at RM Conservative. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.